All right, good morning. And uh, we're going to continue where we were last week. So if you will, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're back in 1 Peter this week. Thankful for uh, Joel letting me have this opportunity again. And I hope this is uh, helpful to you today. So Peter is going to take a turn for us. Um, Twelve verses of wonderful celebration. And we've talked about a lot of that. Uh, the two times that I've been able to share, and um, a lot that we didn't say, a lot that we didn't cover. There's a lot more there than we have time and and, um, ability to even cover, but um, today we're going to turn the corner a little bit and look at verse 13. Um, So uh, Peter is going to let us know here that what he's been telling us has a responsibility. Um, You're probably familiar with the doctrinal duty uh, structure of a lot of the epistles. And so Paul, a lot of uh, his epistles, would take the first full large section of those letters and cover depths of doctrine, and then the last part would cover responsibility, doctrine and duty. Uh, We went through that uh, in in Romans most recently, of course, a lot of doctrine in 11 chapters, uh, and then a little less time uh, in the remaining chapters of Romans that covered those duty areas. Peter takes a little bit different approach in that he covers real basic, strong doctrine in these 12 verses of chapter 1. Then he dives into foundational responsibilities. And then in the remaining part of the book, he, he will move back and forth between doctrinal issues and applicational issues. So a little bit different than, than what Paul actually does. Um, so let's look at verse 13. We'll read that and then we're going to... Uh, like I like to do, get our heads around some context on those things. So look at verse 13 of chapter 1. It says there, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's writing this to a number of people that we've kind of covered to some extent. We've talked about the the readers who live in what we know as the section of Asia Minor on our maps, um, modern-day Turkey. And we've talked about the situation that they're facing. In in brief, we've done that. be it the Emperor Nero and um, their neighbors or even the Judaizers within the camp, so to speak. But we hadn't really talked about who those people themselves actually are. So I want to do that real quickly before we get into verse 13. So look at verse 1. We've been there before, but look at verse 1. Let's really identify who these people are. So it says there in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then says who he's speaking to. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect exiles of the dispersion. The uh, exiles and the dispersion aren't equal. They're elect exiles as a part of a greater group known as the dispersion. So it's not a one-to-one. It's a subpart of the larger dispersion. There's this group of elect people. Now, uh, ESV is what I'm reading from. It says elect exiles. If you have NASB, it may say this. Aliens scattered. King James, strangers scattered. Holman Christian Standard used it a little bit differently and said temporary residents dispersed. And the English Revised Standard Version says sojourners of the dispersion. A lot of ways you can say it all means the same thing. One word, I've said this word before, uh, peripodemois, which is got a prefix para, which you know is beside, and then the, the main uh, root of the word is uh, visitors. Basically, people who are uh, uh, residing alongside the natives of the land, but who are actually foreigners or visitors from somewhere else. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Peter uses the word again there. He says there, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, I'm in ESV, and exiles. Exiles is that word again, but he has a word before that, sojourners. Synonymous terms, not going to make a big distinction between the two, 
One just means you're a stranger that resides alongside the native people of the land, and the other means you're not a citizen and you have very limited rights. So just kind of some nuances of synonymous things. So that's who we're talking about. People who don't belong where they live, they, they reside among the people who belong there, but they themselves are actually aliens, and they're scattered. They're strangers uh, in that area. So um, where exactly are they? And, and I've already said this. They're, they're Turkey, modern day, so I'm going to try to think in reverse since you're seeing it that way. So if it's um, east to west, you know, it's kind of that, uh, just to make it really simple, it kind of looks like this with the Mediterranean down here and the Aegean, I think it is, and the Black Sea up here. So if you were to look at a map, which may be on your phone or on your printed scriptures uh, in the back or somewhere, these five provinces nearly cover the whole area, except possibly two places, and that is toward the Mediterranean side. So Cilicia, which is over to the southeast corner down here, uh, where Paul was from, Tarsus is there, and it kind of bleeds over into Syria. That's not included, and potentially some to the west is not included either. Uh, Lycia or Lycia, ever how you would pronounce it. Those two areas. Other than that, those five provinces would cover the whole area. 292,000 square miles. Not as large as the continental U.S. It would fit inside of us if you could superimpose it. But not a small area. And people who are residing in a variety of of places. So there's five provinces, and I'm going to describe it this way. There's two on either end of that list. Pontus on one end where it begins, and Bithynia listed fifth. Those two kind of reside as one entity. They were politically divided, but geographically you're basically in the same area. So if you're looking at that map, and I wasn't doing backwards, I guess it's this way, um, they would be on the Black Sea coast at the very top. Rather thin in proportion to the whole area, but kind of resides along the coastlands. Um, that area would border Galatia to the south and Cappadocia more to the southeast of that land. Anyone know uh, anyone who's well-known in Scripture that may have come from that area? I don't think so. But somewhere in, where's Timothy from? I don't remember off the top of my head. So we know from Acts um, 18.2 that a husband and wife team was from that area. Kula and Priscilla. So Bithynia and Pontus would have claimed for the Christian church uh, those people of notoriety. Later, beyond the time we're, we're reading about, uh, Pliny the Younger, the ruler of the area, was well known for his persecution of the believers. Uh, in fact, he felt, he said, as he wrote to the emperor seeking guidance on what to do Christian, he said, if these Christians persevere after being integrated, they should be executed because to him, obstinacy deserves chastisement. An area ruled by a ruler such as that later on, but even in the time of this writing, a lot of powerful temples, local gods, Persian and Greek deities, and sun gods were particularly popular throughout that area. So that's Pontus and Bithynia toward the top. And the main central area as you come south would be Galatia, a place where Paul three times visited on his first, second, and third, as we know him, recorded missionary tours, and Galatia is a word that comes from the Gauls or the Celtics uh, and were supposedly immigrants from Europe who had descended and, and settled into that central area of Asia Minor. And as we know from Paul's writings, which he wrote in the late 50s, the book of Galatians, um, and this book of First Peter being written in the early to mid-60s, probably a good five to seven or more years later, we know from Galatians that those people in that area, at least among the churches, were susceptible of quick changes and quick um, shifts from impressions, maybe a fickleness 
in their belief and in their their commitments because Paul had to go in and say the kind of things he said. They're so quickly moved, so quickly bewitched by those false teachers. So that's Galatia, in a sense. To the east of Galatia would be Cappadocia, which would be um, known as the oldest of those provinces, oldest of those civilizations. And if you've ever Googled Cappadocia, or if you haven't ever Googled it, you should, because it's really a remarkable place. Um, the, the beauty, it makes you think more of our western U.S., Utah, Nevada, uh, rock formations that are phenomenal. Um, and it boasted a lot of interesting landscapes. It wasn't very urbanized. And these rock formations actually uh, were opportunities to build homes, uh, chapels, tombs, temples. And they literally had carved out this subterranean community kind of a thing among these different rock formations. So there was a lot of underground, so to speak, living that these people in Cappadocia lived. Uh, underground havens. And they still, if you Google it now, uh, they still occupy those places. Kind of cave looking, but really neat looking architecturally because of the uh, topography of the land. But also they had famous pagan temples, the goddess Ma and the male god Vanasa, I believe you pronounce it, who was equitable to Zeus. So even though they weren't very urbanized, even though they probably were kind of more like a village sense of living uh, among these rock formations and these under-subterranean communities, yet they were still committed to pagan worship. And then Asia would be the last of the five. And Asia is the most, we would say, the most famous of the five because it's the one we know probably the most about. Again, again, to clarify, we tend to think of that whole area as Asia or Asia Minor, but Asia was also a province, and it occupied the western side uh, and to the southern part of the western side more predominantly. The most well-known church there would have been the church at Ephesus, and the seven churches in Revelation also were located in that area as well. Uh, Other regions that you'll read of in scripture, Phrygia, Mysia, Lydia, thus was also among the the province of uh, of Asia. Pagan worship, very well established. In fact, in Ephesians, the the, um, pagan worship of Artemis there and the the supernatural and the uh, sensationalism uh, that they they occupied there. So just, just to kind of give a little bit of offering of where these people lived. A lot of diversity, a lot of uh, landmass, a lot of scattering. They would have lived in any number of these different places. So the unique thing about First uh, Peter uh, being a general epistle, just as Hebrews and James and the epistles of John and um, those, we, we kind of have a little bit of a uh, scoped or ranged uh, idea of who he was writing to. We don't know specifically we do know they were Hebrews that were probably receiving the book of Hebrews. We do know that James wrote to the dispersion of the Jews, but geographically we don't know where they were. But here we do know, and, and what it kind of gives us a picture of is um, these are believers who were living in a variety of different situations, uh, a variety of different geographically speaking, topographically speaking, uh, politically speaking in the Roman Empire, but ruled by different Um, governors in those provinces, and also the pagan worship was diverse. So the interesting thing is there's a lot of religion going on in this area, but probably only one is being singled out. So it's okay to be religious, but there's a certain one that causes troubles, which is really interesting. And it sounds a lot like what we also experience. Um, So even if we were having an epistle to the believers in the United States. We might have a lot of descriptions like I made. People live on the far west coast and talk about all those things. People live in the northeast. People who live in the midwest. um, The south. There'd be a lot of varieties. Cities of commerce, cities of worship, cities of all number of things. And we find ourselves in a similar situation where we are ourselves dispersed. We're scattered. We're not all united in one place. Uh, We don't have a single temple, maybe, in a certain city that 
we would claim. We're not of this land. We're exiles. We're sojourners. And we're strangers. So we share, though time separates us, we share a lot in common with these readers here. So it's a counterintuitive strategy, really, when you think about it. So any movement that needs power would typically want to strategize to unite everybody, to bring everybody together, to unite forces. So in our nation, when people want to make a big statement, they travel to the mall in Washington, D.C., and they count the number of people, and they have power when they do that, and influence, and then it's kind of the PR move of this is how much we can influence everybody. Um, But believers are scattered. Believers aren't necessarily united in a mass force. Though we gather as local congregations in our churches, we don't necessarily unite in a global or universal or even necessarily in a national type situation. And so nowhere in this book are you going to find that kind of a recommendation to these believers either. Um, The way Peter's going to shepherd them to deal with the situations they're in are very still scattered and dispersed in the way he teaches them. So they're different. They are very different. So when we get to verse 13, Peter is going to call them to some foundational realities. And I want to cover two things in those verses. Foundational realities. Now he's going to get really practical when you move through the book and you read further. But in these verses, he gets very foundational. He gets very core, very fundamental. Um, so, but later, just to read off a list for you, later, Peter's going to tell us things that are practical, like this. Love one another. Put away malice, slander, deceit, hypocrisy, envy. Desire God's word, just like a brand new born baby would desire milk. Um, he'll tell us to abstain from the passions of our flesh that wage war against our souls. He'll tell us to stay honorable in our conduct among un- unbelievers and be subject to human institutions, even government. Uh, he'll tell us to live as free people, people who don't use that freedom to serve their flesh, but use it to serve other people. He'll tell us to honor everybody, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He'll tell um, Servants to be subject to their masters, even the unjust ones, as well as the good. He'll tell wives, be subject to your own husbands. And husbands, live with your wives in an understanding, honoring way. He'll tell us to be humble, tenderhearted, unified, sympathetic, and loving. Show hospitality to one another and don't grumble about those things. He'll tell us to use our gifts to serve each other. And he'll tell us to love one another earnestly so that we can even overlook offenses between ourselves. So he'll get really practical. But these verses, he's foundational. He's very foundational. So what threat are Christians to a culture? Really, what threat are Christians? Even the list I just read, these are Roman citizens. They live in these provinces. Peter's instructing them to live these ways later in the book. I mean, so what a threatening group they would be, right? I mean, if you're zealous for what's good... Who's going to harm you? And all these things I just read off, practically speaking, are not threatening, frankly, to anyone. They should be things that should be necessarily thought of as being good citizens or or good community dwellers or people who are easy to get along with and work with and live beside and those kind of things. And yet, these are things that offend for one reason or another. They're offensive they end up in a sense of conflict at some point down the road. Um, We're going to get to verse 13, I promise. But chapter 4, look at verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. In encouraging these readers, Peter says this, the time that has passed, and it's interesting, he doesn't really say at what point that past is, so it would have been a different point for everybody. And it really means it's pretty universal. There's been plenty of time, no matter how much time it's been. The time that's passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Well, what is it that they want to do? Well, here's the list. They live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So really... Because you don't participate in those things. So it's the 
things you don't do sometimes that are the causes for conflict. Um, so here's some of the things we hear. And I bet that these believers heard too. Christians, aren't they, aren't they just like naive people? Uh, aren't they just simpletons? They're foolish and gullible. Um, aren't they just really idealistic traditionalists? Aren't they just self-righteous, holier-than-thou types? Um, you hear those kind of remarks from time to time. Maybe not all the time. And it seems like it, some of those kind of things kind of go through trends. You'll hear things that, that land at different times during cultural trends where you'll hear some of those kind of remarks or maybe in your personal contacts with people you may hear some of those kind of things. But Peter, I think, says no. Yeah, they can be accused of those things from an external perspective, but there's something much greater internally going on for believers that leads to those kind of slanderous remarks and probably the kind of slander that these believers received. So if you're in chapter 4, as we were a moment ago, look at chapter 3, verse 15. Because this ties into where we're going to go today. Chapter 3, verse 15. uh, says there, well, let's look at verse 13. Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? For even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Then verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And now chapter 1, that that segues straight into where we're going to go. Chapter 1 and verse 13. We live our lives with a hope and we live our lives with holiness. The two things that are foundational, core, um, and um, non-negotiable at our very center of being. Those are the things that drive us. So we're looking today at the inside mind of the outsiders. And that's the mind we, as outsiders, also should have. Looking inside the mind of outsiders. So two things... So in verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully. That's the main verb, set your hope. Actually, we could say it this way, hoping, hope you on these things. It's really straightforward. It's very simple, just plain hope. MacArthur defines it really well, and so I'm going to quote him. Basically, he says, hope is defined as the Christian's attitude toward the future. Hope, in its essence, is the same substance as faith. It's believing God. That's the substance of hope. It's trusting God. Only faith is believing God in the present, and hope is believing God for the future. Faith believes what God has said, what God has done, And hope believes what God has promised yet to do. So in a sense, faith then is trusting God for the present. And hope is trusting God for the future. Both are trusting God. Or to put it another way, faith accepts, hope expects. Faith appropriates, and hope anticipates. I just thought it was so good, I wanted to actually read the way he said that. Um, Just contrasting faith and hope. And we know from Hebrews 11.1 that faith is the substance of things or the assurance of things hoped for. So that's the main verb, hope. Hope you. Hope in what? Well, it says right there, set your hope fully on the grace. Which grace? The grace that will be be brought to you. Now, we traced the word grace a little bit last week uh, in saying that salvation could be renamed in a couple of different ways in verses 10 through 12. And one of those ways, or the first of those ways, was that it was grace. In fact, it says in verse 13, the grace to be brought to you um, here uh, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, but in the verse before, um, let's see if I can get my verses right here, verse 10, it says the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, the salvation that was to be yours. Uh, And so there's this future aspect There's this future grace. There's this current grace that came that was to be yours, the prophets talked about. 
And then there's this future grace that's going to be revealed yet at a time we have yet to reach. And it says it's there at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says it's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And verse 7 says that this, this, uh, this grace will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the main verb is hoping and the main object is grace. Now let's look at the actions. So we know what, the, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to hope. But he uses two participles here that lead up to that. Um, some versions make it three different um, commands or exhortations. Um, they may say this, fix your minds for action, be sober, set your hope. It sounds like three individual separate exhortations. But actually, the first two are participles. And so they're, uh, they're actions that are preceding the main action that you're to be doing. So just by definition here, uh, does anyone have a King James? Anybody? You have a new King James. I didn't look at that. What is, how does it say it? Um, yeah, that would be helpful for me to tell you. <laughs> the first part of uh, verse 13, uh, right before setting your hope. How does it say it? Gird up the loins of your minds. Uh, that gets a little bit closer to me. Every way it's translated is, is correct. There's a reason they're all correct. But to me, um, just taking personal uh, interjection here, the best way to say it would be this. Having girded up the loins of your mind and being sober. They're participles leading up to the main thing, and that is hope. Fix your hope or set your hope. So literally, the King James, the New King James, picks up this idea of the loins of your mind. And ESV drops that, and I think a few other modern versions drop that idea. That's really giving you more of the, uh, the figurative picture of what this really means. So I'm, I'm sure you've heard of this. Um, and that is in, in, the, in the Old uh, Testament times where they would have uh, had the robes, and they would have, if they were trying to make way in haste and run, they could not run with the flowing robes. And so they would have to literally take the belt and fasten it up pull everything that's loosely hanging and impeding your movement with any kind of speed and pull it up so that you can move your legs well. And that's literally the figure of speech that Peter's getting at. And so I think by saying it that way, you actually start thinking more about what he's trying to tell you. That if left to yourself, your mind will just hang loose. Your mind will just go where it will. Your mind will not be ready for action. And so, not to pick on anything specific, just saying that that way of translating it would really give us a better idea of what Peter is trying to say. And it is a middle voice, which means you're doing it to yourself. You're actually making the action on yourself. You are the one girding up. Now, last week I said that um, I would argue that everything Peter said, verses 1 through 12, literally did prepare your minds for action and make you sober. Um, And I think that was an important thing to make because he wasn't just talking for 12 verses with no point. He wasn't just telling us all those depths of celebration and joy and amazement of salvation for no good reason just to go to a command that had no connection. My argument really is that he did everything there as a basis for preparing your mind. So what's the cause and what's the drive to do it? And I think that's what the first 12 verses do for us. It causes us to want to move quickly and to be ready for action and to prepare ourselves by girding up those loins. So it does say loins and it does say mind. So it's not just your mind alone. It is the loins of your mind, which again gives us a figure that in the reproductive faculties of your mind, you are tightening your belt. So our minds are not stagnant. Our minds are always doing something. And that's the scary part about our minds. Uh, We can't really go neutral. Uh, We usually are doing something. And if we don't seize control of it, 
it will go where it wants to go and it will hang loose and will end up in places it should never be or um, we should um, never allow to entertain for it to be, no matter what direction that might be. Peter really gets into that really quickly in chapter 2 because he names the things that are really difficult probably for most everyone. Um, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. How quickly the mind can get into those kind of things and stray from godly thinking. So it's interesting, those are the things he exhorts us so that we can get our minds into the Word of God in chapter 2. But I think this really gets at it. That we're, we're, we're tightening our belt, we're girding up the loins of our mind, and we are the ones responsible. He's helped us in 12 verses for the reason, but we're the ones. The second part of simple is this, being sober. That means being alert, being controlling of your mind. Uh, the word actually does mean not being intoxicated. So not being controlled, not being consumed, or not being driven. And it can mean actual intoxicants from liquids, but it, physically speaking, but it means here, figuratively, the mind being controlled. So we are impacted constantly by the things we see, the things we hear, and the things we learn. So you know what this is like. Because as you walk through this life, there are things that you see, you hear, and you learn that can be good and can be bad. So um, I'm sure every one of us have had this experience where we would say about something, I wish I hadn't seen that. Or I wish I hadn't heard that. Because you can't get it out of your mind. Because it's there and it's plaguing you. No matter what arena that may have come from. I can't forget what I saw or I'll never forget what I saw. Um, So my mind goes quickly to to, uh, if you ever see a horrible accident. Be it on a road or just in a sport or something like that. Just something that you just cannot get out of your mind. It just impacts you. So we have to be sober. We have to be alert to things that affect us negatively. But in 12 verses before this, Peter's given us a way to be affected positively by some things. To be overwhelmed with truth and overjoyed with what God has done for us and to have a heart of gratitude and thanks for those things. So in sobriety of our minds, we seize control and we, we, we focus those things toward the things that will be positive toward truth. Philippians 4.8, I learned this in the old King James, is a way to try to remember uh, how to think well. And that's this, Thijplo, T-H-J-P-L-O. Doesn't work with the modern translations, but the old King James. True, honest, just, pure lovely, of good report. Fidgeplo. Maybe that could be a help. Fidgeplo. Make your minds sober by thinking Fidgeplo. So it's really an applicational choice. You do nothing, you'll hang loose, things will happen, you'll get in places you should never be, it'll lead you to roads you should never go, you'll reap a character from that. Uh, If I'm left to myself, I'll die a thousand spiritual deaths in my mind because I have to seize control. So unguarded absorption of my environment, sights, sounds, and thoughts, will inevitably callous my sensitivities and make my heart hardened. So if I want to be that way, just live unguarded and disorderly and untidy and tolerant in the way I think. So we get up in the morning, and the first thing we usually think of is self. Got to take care of self. Um, So that's not all bad, you know. Because if we don't, then it's going to bother everyone else if we don't take care of self. But we've got to quickly move off of self and get to things that take us away from ourselves. And we've got to start thinking about the ways we can sober our minds and alert our minds and gird up the loins of our minds to walk forward. So outsiders who don't think like the world think like this. They're preparing themselves. They're alerting themselves. They don't jump in the car and automatically start listening to all the news. 
uh, it was a habit I had to really break, um, and I can get into meddling, so forgive me if I hit on something that's me and not you. So that just has to be something for me. I just jump in the car to go to work, got to hear what the latest news is. And all of a sudden, my mind has just gone crazy with things that is not truth. It's not true, honest, just, pure, lovely, or of good report. Fidgepo is not there uh, for the most part. Hardly anywhere. So you get in the car and you plan another way to get your mind going. Because after all, if you're driving down the road, there's a lot of time you can do some thinking and other things. So maximize the time. But that may be different for different people who, who may not necessarily drive a lot. You may have other ways that this would work. But just personally speaking, that's one way that has really made a difference in my personal life. So taking the pollution out of my thought waves, getting my mind onto eternal things and not what just happened today and is going to happen next week or this year or during the next four years, so to speak. Um, think about things that are going to happen forever and not just for now. So discipline ourselves. Tighten our belts. So I have to ask you this. What's on your list? What are you doing to prepare your mind? What are you doing to stay sober in a world that would like to intoxicate you with its desires and its directions and philosophies? So it's a rhetorical question, but it's one you should be answering. What is it you're doing to do that? So time in the Word will change our minds. And there's so many ways we can do it. I mean, we have so many opportunities to carry the Word with us. Audio-wise, and obviously the written word, and we're portable, we can connect and click in, and just there's just an innumerable ways to, uh, to be in the Word. So that alone will change. So why, is this so, so why is it so critical? Why is this so critical? Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. I'm really struck with how much Peter, 1 Peter, and Ephesians cover themes that are, that are common to one another. Look at verse 17. Ephesians 4. So he says to these believers, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk, as Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart. Paul gave us five adjectives for the Gentiles' way of thinking. Five things. They're futile. They're darkened. They're alienated. They're ignorant. And they're hardened. So there's a connection between heart and mind. And that's a study for another day. Heart and mind are inseparable. So we can read about the heart, we can read about the mind, and it can literally be thinking and saying the same thing. Not totally exclusively, but drastically overlapping. So some of these descriptions get at the heart. And it's interesting that the ignorance and the futility is all rooted in the last phrase, due to their hardness of heart. You can't think straight if your heart isn't right. You can't have the ability to think straight unless your heart's been changed by the grace of God. And so, Paul really gives us a, a, a strong uh, uh, insight view of, way, of the way that the Gentile mind actually thinks. Dead to the things of God, and those are the reasons. Um, so just kind of summing all that up, we, we, we need to be enabled to think the way God would have us think, and the role of the mind in the Christian faith is crucial, foundational, and core to how we live in this world as believers, as sojourners, as exiles, as outsiders. Uh, Just another remark, too. Uh, There's a lot of reticence or a lot of resistance, even, maybe to knowledge. Uh, It wouldn't be true at faith community and like-minded churches, but in in the realms that I've floated around uh, over a lifetime at this point, I've been in ministries or churches where there's a resistance to knowledge. There's, there's almost like you, know, you just tune off learning. You just need to know a few basics, and then it's all about serving and loving. And um, the problem is that the Scripture really makes the heart and mind 
so crucial to how we live. So some of the complaint I've heard is that you make things too academic or too scholarly or too cerebral. Uh, and that can be a valid argument. That can be a valid complaint at times. But this type of knowledge and learning and thinking is not necessarily in those ways. These are heart issues. These are thoughts. These are knowledge issues. These are thinking issues that aren't necessarily academic or scholarly or high IQ based or cerebral think tank type things. Though those things may be good and and definitely we are thankful for those levels. But this is at its core heart issues, hearts that can't think and can't think biblically. All right, let's move on. Uh, Verse 14. So that's our hope. And it's prepared and alerted through our thinking. And it's focused on the grace in the future. Now verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There's thinking again. Ignorance. Lack of knowledge, not knowing. There's, um, there's still a mind involved. But as he, verse 15, has called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So while outsiders have a different way of thinking in a different direction, here outsiders or aliens or strangers have a different discernment for their passions. And their passions change to holy living. So the main point here is holiness. What is holiness? Let's throw that out. What does it mean when it says holy? What is holiness? The very word itself. To be separate. God separates himself from all else because he is by his own nature and his own definition holy it's a relational thing where he's separate and it's a moral quality where he's separate from all that's sinful or evil and he's separated not just negatively from those things but positively to his own glory and honor and here's the problem so if he is holy and he is separate then there's a gap between us and him. There's a distance that we can't cross. And that is the very essence of his judgment. His judgment comes from who he is. And so his holiness is the basis of all wrath and all judgment that's executed against everything and everyone who's outside of his holiness. And yet, we are called to be holy. Um, 611 times in the English Bible, the word holy is mentioned. The two most notorious places we think of are with um, Isaiah in chapter 6, where the angels say, holy, 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 and is repeated by the four creatures in Revelation 4, where day and night they never cease to say those things. Holy, holy, holy. Psalms, we we read about multiple places that God is the Holy One of Israel and even the name Holy One is repeated in multiple places in the prophetic books. Um, On earth, God designated certain places as holy. He designated the tabernacle to be set apart, holy to Him. And within that tabernacle, the most holy place or the holy of holies where God did descend in his presence. He dedicated one day of the week in the old covenant as the Sabbath day, the holy day, dedicated to holy service. And he dedicated men, priests, as holy to him, Aaron and his sons and the Levitical priesthood. Those things we understand cognitively as being holy. But experientially, it's really, really hard to get your mind about what holy really is. It's just so much other than. Um, So there's a demand for this. So I think we learned a little bit about what it means by what it isn't. So look at that verse, verse 14. Um, It says there, 
Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. If we negate the negative, then we get a sense of what the positive would actually be. And that is this. Passions of ignorance are not holy. So they would have to be passions of knowledge, passions of the heart that's been changed, passions for the good, passions for the grace that God has brought to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, It's interesting, the word there, um, that you are not to be conformed, um, is a word that talks about being a model, a word that actually would hint at being a pattern or having an outward type of a shape. It's only used two times. Uh, The other place, anybody remember? Two times. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed uh, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mind and conformity is connected in that passage. So what it is, is that when you allow the outward shape of the pattern and the mold and the model of the world you live around, then you follow those passions and those passions are the exact opposite of what's separated to God and holy to God. So as it says here, as obedient children, not disobedient children, but as obedient children, we are to do these things. These are things that obedience brings um, to, to, uh, to weed out these models and patterns of conformity to the world that's around us, these passions of ignorance. Um, if you're still in Ephesians, you may or may not be, look back at chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. The very beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, when he describes how we are before we come to Christ, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience. There's a contrast. Children of obedience, sons of disobedience. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Children of of wrath, sons of disobedience, as compared to children of obedience. Now look over at chapter 4, you're in Ephesians, where we were earlier, verse 17 we read, and verse 18 we read, but now look at verse 19. So these who are this way, these Gentiles, says there, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice, every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. And then the, uh, the formula that we're, that we're really so familiar with, that we put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then verse 23, we, we renew the spirit of our minds in verse 24, then we put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The things that stick out to me are bad thinking, deceitful desires, former ignorance, Peter says, deceitfulness. Every time I fall in sin, it's because my mind is deceived. And my mind is deceived because my heart is still being changed. Deceitful desires, former ignorance. We've got to know the truth more. We've got to have it in our hearts to change our thinking. Then we renew the spirit of our minds and then we put on the likeness of God, which is His holiness. I know time's kind of running out, so we'll finish up in verses uh, 15 and 16. Real fast, we'll wrap up here. So, Those are based on two things. Verse 15 is based on him because he is holy. And verse 16 is based on the law that never changes. So there's a positive call. Why are we to be holy? Because he is holy. He has called us 
to holiness. Hebrews 12, 14. The holiness, he says there, the writer says, without which no one will see the Lord. And in Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes, we're reminded that the pure in heart are the ones who will see God. We're called to that. And by God's grace, we will be that in the day we're glorified. And then verse 15, it is written. It, re, um, it, it reflects back to three places in Leviticus. Le- Leviticus 11.24, where it says that um, you shall be holy, for I am holy, in respect to dietary laws. And in chapter 19, verse 2 of Leviticus, you shall be holy, because I am holy. It is written, you shall be holy because of social and religious duty. And then Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26, it says the same thing there. We are holy and we are to be holy as opposed to demonic or cultic influences and dangers in our lives. So to wrap it up, Peter has invited us to think this way. Peter has invited us to think like outsiders do. And he's called us to holiness, to put away the ignorance of our minds and deceitfulness of the world that we live around. But just to seal it up, he says this, regardless of where you land personally, there's some things that don't change. God will still be holy and his command will still stand. It is written. And so the responsibility still falls on each one of us as believers. He's encouraged us, Peter has, immensely with truth. But at the end of the day, we are still responsible before God. So sojourners and strangers think in a different way, no matter how or where they are. And that thinking flows from their salvation, and they work out that salvation, as it says, in fear and in trembling. And that actually is where Peter's going to go in the verses that follow this. That we do this because we fear. And that's an interesting topic too. Alright. I did all the talking again. So anybody? Any remarks? Any questions? Any comments you'd like to make? Alright. Thank you for your time.